As the number of cath lab patients grows, so does the need to work smarter and faster. With the all new Philips Intrasight, you can. Experience a comprehensive suite of clinically proven imaging and physiology tools, including IFR co-registration, and go beyond the angiogram to further understand patient anatomy and disease. Learn more at philips.com backslash intrasite. You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello, and welcome to the December 2019 edition of Heart Sounds. This is the podcast where I recap some of the top stories in cardiology for the past month and in the regular run of things, let you listen in on some of the interviews the reporters in my team did to write their TCTMD stories. If you're a longtime faithful listener, you know I do something different in December. This is the most magical time of the year for the podcast, don't you know? That's because it's the only time in the whole year where the interviewers become the interviewees. I asked each of the TCTMD writers to choose one story from the past 12 months that stood out for them. Maybe it was their favorite story of the year, maybe it was something that was particularly challenging to pull together, or a story that took an unexpected turn. One by one, I dragged each of them into the TCTMD studios to tell us what they picked. Have a listen. All right, I've got Laura McEwen here with me, and Laura was announced as the new section editor for Cast Lab Forum, which is a new section on the website that's proved really popular so far. Are you having fun with it? Oh, absolutely. It's a really great opportunity. Yeah, connecting with new people. And that's in addition, of course, to all the meetings you covered this year, some of them quite spontaneously. Mm-hmm. Um, but you kicked off the year with CRT, you went to ACC, you came to EuroPCR with us for the first time in a while. There was Viva and Veith and the heart failure meeting. Heart failure meeting was TCT, a great one. of course. And you weren't doing the dailies at the TCT meeting. You were with the TCTMD team, so that was a big win for us. That was us. great, yeah. Yeah. You covered a ton of endovascular stuff for us this year, but what stands out as a highlight for you? Well, I think it definitely has to be the Paclitaxel story. Uh, at the end of last year, 2018, uh, my end of the year endovascular story was about the Cassanos meta-analysis, and we didn't really know very much at that time. And all the people I was interviewing were saying, I think we're going to be finding out a little more in 2019, and we certainly did. We saw a lot of meetings, uh, devoting sessions to this, and we saw Dr. Katsanos himself at a lot of these meetings, answering questions, uh, presenting additional data from his meta-analyses. So it really, it was a very interesting year um, in many different ways and a lot of surprises. And I think just overall, this was a great story. Um, and it really had legs. I think at this time last year, we thought we might see some more formal sort of, I don't know, things addressed um, in the, the journals perhaps. But instead, what we saw was every single meeting you went to, you ended up covering this topic where there was actually usually new data. Yes, I think that's true. Um, it sort of built on itself throughout the year with uh, various things that came out. The Medicare analyses, there were two of those. Then we saw several uh, other uh, updates from some of the randomized trials uh, where they were finding additional uh, patients that were lost, data that was lost, they were adding to it. The p-values were changing a little bit, Uh, not drastically changing a little bit, but the signal was still there. We saw the FDA becoming involved, uh, and I think that that was sort of a turning point because uh, the FDA said, we take this seriously. They issued three letters this year. 
uh, finally, their, their their last letter was that they were going to be working with the companies to update the labeling, and that was something I think everyone expected uh, from about the mid-year on. Yeah. One of the things that's really come out of your reporting, I think, with this has been people telling you that this has been a real uh, kind of kick in the butt, for lack of another term, to this particular line of research that unlike coronary trials um, with some of these devices, these ones have perhaps not been collecting data as rigorously, and it's been difficult to actually get the kind of numbers you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that that is something going forward that many people say may have been a silver lining in all of this. It may lead to more rigorous uh, trials and research in this field and probably improve things. I mean, you know, I'm not a researcher, obviously, but the ones that I've talked to have said, we think this, you know, may help us improve uh, in the future with what we do. Yeah, I think your, your reporting has been a big part of that. If you had to look in a crystal ball, any predictions for next year? I do. I have a few. I think, um, you know, the Barmer analysis from Germany that came out, I believe, in September, after that one, um, people started to say that there are several other of these large healthcare databases out there. And I think that we're probably going to see next year more of those from different countries, maybe even some more from Germany, because there are several others in Germany that are comprehensive that can be uh, done in the same way. And um, yeah, I think we may see more Medicare data next year, too, um, and maybe some other things, and I'll leave it at that. Okay. Well, thanks so much for telling us a bit about it today, Laura. Thank you. All right, I've got Michael O'Reardon in the hot seat. Hi, Mike. Hello. Now, you had a busy meeting for us. You started off at the ACC, you headed to EuroPCR, the ASRO meeting, ESC, TCT, and then you took London Valves off my plate this year. So, quite a busy one. What was your favorite? That is correct. I really enjoyed London Valves, partly because it was in London, but also because I went into that meeting a little nervous. I went in not really sure what to expect. Um, it tends to be a smaller First meeting. First time at a meeting. First yeah. time at a meeting. But uh, I was really pleasantly surprised. There was quite a lot of news there, and there were quite a lot of um, cardiologists that I recognized. And uh, it was a very accessible meeting. It was it was nice to be able to, to connect with the doctors on a pretty intimate conference. And uh, yeah. yeah, I really enjoyed it. It yeah, was a fun meeting. meetings are always fun like that, I think. Yeah, totally. Okay, well, the purpose of this is to talk about your either your favorite story of the year or the one that was the hardest to tackle or just something that stands out for you. Have you, have you chosen one to tell us about? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, um, it wasn't particularly a, a hard story, I guess. I, I covered the two uh, TAVR low-risk trials back at the ACC in uh, March, and they were interesting. They were you know, partner three in the Evolute TAVR and low-risk patients trial, and uh, they both showed non-inferiority and then, I guess, superiority for uh, the partner three trial. And, uh, I mean, that's interesting in of itself. And then we waited for the FDA approval um, come summer, and uh, it's usually a period of watchful waiting, and you kind of assume when is it going to come. And in the meantime, I was working on a feature on kind of how are physicians going to react to the news, or how have they reacted to the news uh, from okay, the ACC? Okay, right, because I remember, because they had access to the device, so were they going to start, was there going to be sort of indication creep before that approval came, because they had access to the device, and were obviously seeing patients who probably didn't meet the criteria for moderate or high risk, and the sure, temptation. Sure, right. And actually, right. I remember that quite quite well. A lot of them were saying, 
saying that there was no indication creep. They weren't kind of fudging the numbers, and uh, they were actually just waiting. Many assumed it was going to be approved, and it was simply a matter of time. And But in the, in the process of working my way through the story, the FDA did one of their Friday news dumps and approved <laughs> it around 3 p.m., I think, on a Friday, just while I was in the midst of uh, writing the feature up and uh, had to kind of change gears pretty quickly. Yeah, I remember, because we wanted this feature to kind of remind people of all the issues and prepare them for the approval, and then we were kind of broadsided when the approval came. And you were so sad, because you'd done so much work on it. It was sad. But yeah. in the end, it, all got, it was all useful. It was all part of your approval story. Yeah, it came around. It came around pretty well. I mean, it's it was one of those things where I had a lot on tape, and I had a lot kind of to work with. And so when the approval came, I, I had a lot to, to go with. I mean, I know the approval for a low-risk um, population probably wasn't super exciting. It's kind of the last of the uh, the approval processes for um, TAVR. But uh, it was nice to just kind of watch it come full circle. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for telling us about it here today. Thank you for having me. Okay, next up is Caitlin Cox, the news editor at 2CTMD. Caitlin has also had an incredible year with some of the news and features she's covered, and we might get into those, but uh, she's also been at a number of the big meetings. It was it's kicking off the year, I think, with ICIT, followed mm-hmm. by, let's see, ACC, EuroPCR, TCT, yep, and then you had your first AHA ever. Yeah, which is kind of shocking that I've been doing this so long, and I just now managed to make it to AHA. I've been editing it for years from people who've been there, but this is my first time on site. Yeah, it was a fun. lot of fun. So what about your favorite story of the year, most challenging story of the year, or was it hard to choose? It was hard to choose, but I mean, I think standing out as most challenging was my feature that I wrote about uh, peripheral interventions in office space labs. Um, That was part of, I mean, almost a year of uh, research and six months of active reporting, basically uh, getting to the heart of the fact that physicians who are working in that peripheral space don't have a lot of hard evidence to work with. Many of them are trying to do the very best that they can, but the structure of Medicare reimbursement allows for a lot of ambiguity and a lack of oversight, and it really varies state by state. So I um, got word from some physicians in Florida about some concerns they'd been having about um, physicians in their area doing what they viewed as unnecessary interventions. And what they were really struggling with was, as a physician, what do you do when you see another physician doing something that you don't think is right. What they found is when they went to Florida health authorities, doctors' complaints were viewed with more skepticism than patients' complaints would be. And they really were kind of, uh, I don't know, they hit a wall and they didn't know what to do and it was a very emotional situation for them. And part of the problem with this, or part of what you wanted to look at, was that these a lot of these procedures are taking place at office-based labs, but when something goes wrong, these patients were ending up at the hospitals, which is why there was, you know, perhaps being interpreted as, as a sort of competition between doctors, but actually some of those ones working in the hospitals were concerned that they were left to kind of pick up the pieces when things went awry. Exactly, exactly. So uh, I tried to trace as much of that story as possible, but to put it within the larger picture of when you're working at an OBL, what incentive do you have to do the right thing? There is a lot, but a lot of it is uh, up to the doctor themselves. And um, many people are doing great work in the space. 
What was interesting to me was that they have to be independently motivated in large part. And there's not a ton of oversight. Yeah, yeah. And I really didn't, to be honest, I didn't come up with an answer at the end. And looking forward to 2020, uh, Medicare is now going to be reimbursing for coronary interventions, not just diagnostic and geography, but interventions at ambulatory surgery centers in the United States. And so it will be interesting to see how that evolves in parallel to what's happened in the peripheral space. A lot of people are a little nervous about it. So it'd be cool. No, this was a great investigative feature that you really dug into, and we worked on it really closely together for a number of months. So if people missed it, they should go back and and catch that um, feature story. Thank you for your hard work on it, too, because it really did take some weeding through all the information that we had. Yeah, that's a team effort. If you didn't get a chance to read Caitlin's investigative feature when it aired earlier this year, have a look for it on TCTMD by searching Peripheral Vision. Thanks so much for coming in, Caitlin. Thank you. Okay, hello, Todd. How are you? Thanks for coming in. Hello. Good to be here. I've been starting off by um, looking back at the meeting coverage that each of the journalists have done this year, and and you have one of the earliest meetings of the year with the Stroke Conference, which is usually January, February, right? That's right, yeah. Okay, and then you didn't have ACC this year because you went to the Heart Rhythm meeting in Europe, which is great. It was good to get another trip to Europe. Yeah, nothing to not like there. And then what was the next one for you after that then? Heart Rhythm Society, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you've definitely had the Heart Rhythm beat this year. And then ESC, TCT, AHA. I think so. Sometimes I forget some places I went, but yes. Yeah, it's pretty funny. It's it's not even the end of the year yet, and we're already forgetting where we've been. But um, So a busy meeting calendar for you for sure, but also a bunch of interesting regular stories along the way. Any particular ones stand out that you want to tell us about? Putting some thought into this, you know, it's always always fun to cover kind of the big trials and and big studies and new developments in devices and uh, other technology and drugs and things. But it's also kind of interesting when I get to cover things that touch on more of a personal note, I guess, and and maybe some social issues. Um, And so one story that came to mind was one out of the the stroke meeting earlier this year, just looking at uh, the representation of, of women participating in that meeting in particular, but it sort of builds on the topic that we've been covering as a team over the past several years. Yeah, um, this is, you're talking about trying to replace the mantles of um, the all white mantles that we were sort of dominating the meetings for many years. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. And so at, at this meeting, there were, they actually had some studies, some data to sort of look at the female representation, both in terms of the studies that were presented, authorship, um, and then also the, the leadership of the ISC and, and the meeting itself. Okay. Um, so, you know, it was it was an interesting topic to tackle. I got to, you know, speak with, you know, a lot of different physicians about this topic, you know, and what, you know, and kind of what they're doing to try to address, you know, what they see as an underrepresentation of women during the meeting. What kind of a difference do you think it makes? I mean, um, we've been going to these meetings for years, and from our perspective, from your perspective, does it make a difference to see a sort of different face of the meeting? Do you feel like your stories are different based on the type of person that's presenting, or I would also think commenting on some of those things? I think so. Uh, you know, it's always it's always good to get some different perspectives. And, you know, when I first started doing this about 10 years ago, I, it probably was, you know, all the same faces, kind of people who've been around a while, which in cardiology typically, you know, tended to be men. Yeah. And so in recent years, there's definitely been a noticeable shift, both at the ISC, the stroke meeting, and then you know, other meetings that we've covered along the way as well have yeah. been working on this noticeably. 
I've often thought that, um, you know, because you often get the same quotes from the same people because they've been doing it for so long, they're so polished and they, they give almost the same quotes to your competitors. And when you get people that aren't as accustomed to being up there, they sometimes say things that are a little more interesting, a little less polished, but maybe a little bit more interesting. Right. Yeah. And it can be, you do sometimes get more unexpected things when you're trying to speak with new people or, you know, yeah. people who haven't been doing it as long. People that are newer to the game and, and less uh, accustomed to speaking to the media, they're often a little bit nervous about um, how their quote will be used. But I think we've established that we're treating people's words with respect. Yeah. I can't think of a time where we've gotten pushback on, you know, misrepresenting somebody's comments or anything like that. Out of that. context. So it's cer- yeah, it's certainly something that we all, we all work towards. Yeah. Okay. Well, you'll be covering the stroke meeting again in early 2020. So we uh, look forward to seeing what you'll find at that meeting too. Okay. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot. All right, now I've got Yael Maxwell here with me, and we've just been trying to recap the meetings she covered this year, and I think she's hands, the hands-down winner for the amount of travel you've done for meeting coverage, so thank you. <laughs> I've walked quite a few miles this year. Indeed. Yeah. So you kicked off the year with the STS meeting. Um, you were at CRT this year, ACC, Fellows, yeah, Sky. Yeah, Fellows, Sky. I went to SECT in July, uh, followed by ESC, TCT, and AJ. It was a busy meeting year for you, for sure, and lots of good stories came out of that. But you also managed to do a lot of great reporting just from the comfort of your own office. So tell me, um, what was a standout for you this year? Uh, So a standout for me was a feature story that I wrote earlier this year looking into um, structural heart training and kind of the challenges that are associated with it as this field has kind of really grown. the, I'd say the three biggest challenges that were identified to me over the course of my reporting was A, the fact that these programs are not consistent. No one really decides what does it mean to be trained in structural heart interventions. Um, is it just TAVR? Does it include mitral? Does it include um, watchmen and, and right. genital? The variability between different programs then. Yes, yeah. yes. So definitely the variability. Um, also, in terms of how these programs are funded. Um, There's a lot of variability there, and the issue with that is the fact that, generally, the fellows don't know how their programs are funded. Some of them do, um, but if they are funded by a big pharmaceutical company or device company, in this case mostly, um, there could potentially be some conflicts there that um, no one has really explored yet just because it's so new. Um, so there were definitely some suggestions that came up in terms of maybe some more ideal situations of, of how these programs should be funded uh, going toward the future. Yeah. Maybe like a third party operated by an organization like Sky or something like that where um, it was there was a little bit more transparency of where the money was coming from. Right. Um, there are also some suggestions in terms of maybe how fellows could work as an attending um, coronary interventionalist and kind of fund part of their training that way. Right. Uh, so that was kind of definitely an open-ended conversation there. And then the third and probably the, the biggest issue at present is the fact that a lot of these fellows go into this extra year of training thinking that the jobs are just going to be lined up for them when they finish Mm -hmm. it because they're going to be so specialized and they're going to have all these desirable skills but 
what a lot of fellows over the past couple of years at least have found is that there are no jobs um, or there are no jobs in any desirable location or doing all of the things that they've been trained in. Um, and a lot of them have had to either uh, settle and make compromises in ways that they didn't think they were going to have to do. Yeah, as I recall, part of the issue is that some of the more senior, primarily um, coronary operators have learned how to do these structural procedures on the job. They haven't gone through specialized fellowships themselves, and they then are doing these these jobs. They're holding these positions. So it's not as if you have to do this training in order to get the job. And then once you're out in the world, other people are already doing these jobs because they have so much, you know, they've got the catheter skills, they've got the other sort of types of things that you would need to be able to do these. Yeah, it's no good putting in all the extra training if you're not going to get a great plum job at the end of it. That's true. That came up a lot in my conversations with sort of the experts in the field, people who are training the trainees um, as it might be. And a lot of these people have learned on the job and they've maybe even developed the technologies or the procedures. So, of course, they're not going to go back and do this training. But then people coming up in the field look at them and say, well, they didn't do the training and they got to that point. So there's some definite discrepancies there for sure. And the other hot topic in this space, of course, is this whole question around volumes and outcomes and how many procedures you do need to do to maintain proficiency. And if there are too many people wanting to do these procedures, then presumably the number of procedures that each will do is not going to be that great. For sure, for sure. And this has been a very kind of almost sexy topic um, I've, I've found over the last couple of years when I've been talking with fellows and they I say what do you what do you want to do when you when you finish your training oh I want to do a year of structural heart interventions and then I want to be a structural heart interventionalist and it's true there are only so many of these procedures that need to be done a year and yes it's growing but still there's a limit it's not the same as coronary interventions uh, in terms of yeah. volume it's one thing I thought about when you were, were speaking there was something that was brought up to me was the fact that due to the inconsistencies in the programs, there have been some murmurs that potentially fellows are just kind of observing procedures and and counting them toward their volumes. And no one's really, you know, making sure what does it mean when a fellow says, this is my volume? And then they're coming out and they're going into jobs and they're saying, oh, I've never done this before. Yeah, they're expected to be the lead operator when in fact they've been the second or the third or they've stood at the side of the room kind of thing. Exactly. So that kind of goes into the need for why these programs potentially need to be better regulated. Standardized. Okay, so anyone who wants to go and find that full feature story, it was really a great one from earlier this year. You just need to look for structural heart hype on TCTMD. Thanks so much for telling us about it, Yael. Thanks, Shelley. As the managing editor, I am deeply involved in all of the stories that journalists write and take full responsibility for the work we do. This came up on Twitter recently, with Michael O'Reardon's coverage of the Excel controversy, sparked by a BBC investigation and the very polarized response in the medical community. Some tweeters insinuated that because TCTMD is published by the Cardiovascular Research Foundation, that our own reporting was perhaps untrustworthy. I'll say here what I said on Twitter. I wouldn't be leading the editorial content on TCTMD if I felt pressure to report things in a way that tilted in favor of the physician leadership at CRF or its central audience, namely interventional cardiologists. It's a delicate position because I need to also guard against overcompensating against that very real potential for bias. I believe our work speaks for itself. 
Because of the need to have this bird's-eye view over all the news at TCTMD, I don't typically write the big stories now, and I do miss that. The big exception this year was ischemia, which I wrote myself. I know every one of the TCTMD reporters would have done a great job with ischemia, but it would have been harder for them than for me. I've been covering cardiology for so long. I reported on the Courage trial back when that set the space quaking, and I understand the history, the subtleties, the rivalries, and the financial stakes at the root of this trial better than anyone on my team. Better, dare I say, than many cardiologists who had already made up their mind as to what this trial would show. I'm guessing you've already read my AHA story and the blogs and interviews that followed on TCTMD, but for me, getting the chance to cover a blockbuster trial this year was my personal highlight. Not only was it a good reminder of what all of the reporters in my group do on a regular basis, but I worked feverishly to get the interviews I needed in order to get a detailed, nuanced story out as fast as possible. And on these rare occasions where I take on a big story myself, I am beyond fortunate to have the depth of knowledge and skills within the TCTMD team to make sure my own work gets the oversight and scrutiny that I typically bring to the other stories we do. That is that for the special holiday edition of Heart Sounds. I hope you haven't been bored stiff by this behind-the-scenes look at the work we do at TCTMD. We had fun, even if you didn't. I'll be back at the end of January with more Heart Sounds. I've got big plans for the podcast in 2020, and I'd love to hear from you if there's something you think we could do differently or better. I'm on Twitter, staying at the edge of the fray as Shelley would too. Or you can reach me by good old-fashioned email at swood at tctmd.com. Whatever you do or do not celebrate this month, be safe, be kind, and stay hydrated. Thanks for listening. Love listening to Heart Sounds? Check out all new original series from TCTMD featuring Rock's Heart Radio with Dr. Roxanne Moran and Talking Points with Dr. C. Michael Gibson. These episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud.